So, we're continuing today with our Kingdom of God series. Today's title, Chapter 3A, Major Biblical Themes. All of Chapter 3 is going to be major biblical themes. I don't know yet if there's going to be 3A, B, C. Uh, I'm hoping to maybe keep it to that. Hopefully not go into a 3D or 3F. Although I guess 3D is quite popular these days, so maybe I'll maybe I'll go to a 3D. Uh, anyway, so today's title, major biblical themes. We're going to look at uh, eternal decree and covenant. What we're going to, as you know, I kind of reorganized this series and split what was originally chapter three into chapters three and four. And if you look at the back here of the series, you'll see all the 15 titles at the end. And what I had wanted to do as chapter 3 was an inner, uh, a survey of, of kingdom history, which is now chapter 5. So actually, I forgot. I, I actually took what was originally chapter 3 and made it three chapters. So we're going to look at major biblical themes. Uh, then we're going to look at the concept of biblical imagery or symbolism, which is uh, a concept that modern people don't see as well as most uh, medieval and ancient people would have. And uh, if you are a, a fan of literature, if you read a lot of literature, novels, things like that, you probably are more familiar with biblical imagery uh, because novels tend to use a lot of imagery and so forth. Um, but we're, some people say we're a symbol uh, impoverished culture today. And uh, so we're going to look at the importance of symbolism in the Bible as chapter 4. And again, many of the chapters will probably be multiple weeks. So with that in mind, let's review uh, Roman numeral 1 on the front of your outline. Our theme verse is Matthew 6.10. When, when, the, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he gave them sort of an outline of how to pray. And we call that the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it was actually traditional throughout many centuries of the church that children would be would memorize the Ten Commandments in their full long form. Today, uh, children memorize the Ten Commandments in their shortened form. They would memorize the Lord's Prayer, and they would memorize Psalm 23. And if you know anything about British or English history, you know that as the different monarchs changed back and forth from Anglican or Protestant to, to Catholic, they would actually persecute uh, whoever, like if a, the monarch was Protestant, they would uh, round up and execute the Catholics. And if the monarch was Catholic, they would round up and execute the Protestants. And during uh, Bloody Mary's ring that we get the drink named after, uh, she was a Catholic, and so she, when she rounded up the Protestants, the way they would tell if they were Protestants is they would have the kids come in, and they would have them recite their Lord's Prayer, their Psalm 23, and the Ten Commandments. And... This had been done in, in, the, in Christendom and in, in the Western church history uh, for centuries. But uh, one of the difference between Protestant and Catholic thinking was the Protestants felt that, the, that everyone should be able to read the Bible for themselves in their own language. So if the kids recited their Lord's Prayer, in, et cetera, in English, she knew they were Protestant. And then she would actually have... Uh, have the father executed while the children watched if they recited their prayers in their Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer in English. So the Lord's Prayer is uh, not, you know, recited in many liturgies and so forth, but it's a, it's a whole teaching in itself. 
it, uh, the reason it was memorized is, is not because uh, there's any kind of idea that the more you repeat something, the more it'll happen. Although uh, that tends to be a, a, a way that teaching, the more you repeat teaching, the more it gets established in people's hearts and minds. That's why liturgies are and, and catechisms are repetitive. Uh, all through the Bible, it talks about re- repeat, remember, repeat, remember. Uh, you know, I, I often run into young Christians who say, well... I've read the Bible through one time. What else is there to do? And I'm like, well, repeat. <laughs> and uh, go ahead and read it a second time. So with that in view, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's a teaching in itself. Uh, today, most people that you ask, what is the kingdom of heaven? will think it has something to do with the next life. When in fact, in the Bible, that subject has nothing to do with the next life, maybe a small little bit, but mostly it has to do with the eternal presence of God, the tabernacle of God that has always been and always will be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion. With uh, Then, of course, the first thing they created was the angelic watchers who worshiped them. And now the saints, have uh, after he created man, Little by little, the, the company of the saints has grown to where it's now multitudes and times multitudes. Uh, if you read that in Revelation 4 and 5 and other places, uh, the Greek is myriads times myriads, which means 10,000s times 10,000s. And if you do the math, that takes you into the billions. So there are billions of people around the throne already entering into the worship. When we worship as Christians on Sunday morning, we enter into that holy of holies and into that tabernacle. We join that uh, celestial praise, and we bring it to earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're doing when we're not just singing a few songs. We're entering into an eternal reality that's outside and above time and only intersects the time-space continuum now. So who you are now and what you're doing now is the most relevant thing uh, as a Christian, that's, that's such a beautiful truth because it's not about who you're training to be. That's very important. But it's what you do now toward the vision you have, that, um, the calling you have for the future. And it's not about who you've been. It's about who you're becoming. And who you're becoming has to do with your interaction with God now. So, you know what? If you're like me and you've made like a colossal amount of mistakes, and you've had like terrible character, and you've been a lousy, whatever God's called you to be, as long as there's still breath, there's still hope, and there's still life, and there's still sanctification and maturation and growth. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, we know that when we see him, Jesus, we will be like him, And anyone who has that hope purifies himself now. See, if you really know if you have hope working in you, if you've really had your spirit changed, if you've really become a new creation in Christ, uh, if you have that kind of hope that causes you to be very aggressive about sanctification now. I want to be more like Christ-like today. 
I want to treat my wife better. I want to be wiser with my children. I want to manage my finances the way God wants me to do. I want to worship him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to grow in my love of God mentally by studying his word and and books related to it and so forth. All of these things we can do now if we have that hope that when we see him, we'll be like him. Uh, You can tell the difference between someone who's kind of uh, very motivated in life and someone who's not very motivated has to do with their level of hope. So don't just say, I need to get a schedule and I need to be more disciplined and I need to quit wasting my life on Facebook and and, uh, whatever things you waste your life on. There's lots of options in modern society to waste your life on. Uh, Ask God to reveal himself to you in such a way that it becomes hope in your deep in your soul. And in which case, you will be a very, very diligent person. Uh, Every day becoming something much more than you were the previous day. That is all what Matthew 6.10 means. Your kingdom and more. I could preach, well, there's, this is 15 parts on what that, that means. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. The king, God's intention has always been to take the perfect kingdom and tabernacle and garden and city of heaven, all the biblical images we'll look at, and bring that to the earth through a people that he redeems through their death he, and entering into his resurrected life so that they can be full of his glory and change the world. If you want, it used to be back in the 60s and 70s that a lot of young people were very altruistic. They wanted to change the world. It wasn't just about selfies and narcissism and different things like that. It was kind of, how do we change the world? And you can always tell when someone has it, has begun to see Christ in his kingdom because People who want to change the world who don't see Christ in his kingdom want to change the people around them, the government, the laws, things like that. Things external to themselves, social justice issues or whatever first. Someone who begins to understand Christ in his kingdom says, Lord, conquer me, change me. You know, let there's an old song, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Someone who really begins to see it begins to see I'm the problem first and foremost Let's begin to work there. And as the, the more the Lord changes us, the more we'll be an instrument for positive change in our families, uh, in, in our neighborhood, in the schools around us, etc. So that's our uh, introduction. No extra charge for that segment. Let's get into the actual body of things today. The eternal decree of God we're going to look at first. And this is based on the idea that God is unchanging. And he's outside and above time, and he's omniscient. He knows all things, and he foreknows all things. He doesn't have all current knowledge. He has all past, present, future knowledge. He doesn't have to organize it like I do in outlines, because he has has an infinite potential amount of outlines to organize all, all truth, which is all one truth, because it all comes from him. Now, we have to break it down so we can kind of think about it because of our finite minds. God doesn't need to do so. And he doesn't, uh, there's nothing that happens. One of the things I always encourage Christians when, when uh, I call it the manifest principle, you know, as, as, your, as life situations, you stumble, you fall, what's in your heart really gets manifested. 
by your, by your actions and your behavior, and, and, and what's, when your cup gets bumped, whatever's in it comes out, I like to say. When that happens, you cry out to God to be more Christ-like because he doesn't change. And guess what? He doesn't go, oh, I didn't know that was in there. I'm so ashamed of you. I'm, nonsense. Before he began to call you, he knew what a worm you were. He knew what a despicable, conniving, weasel, uh, you know, self-righteous, putting too harsh on others uh, person you were, and he came to save you from all that. And so when you fall, and maybe you're, you know, for instance, you know, someone who has anger management issues, that anger management is all about pride. It's It's about, I didn't get my way. So as we walk with God, we humble ourselves, and we understand we're walking in a, in a life that he gets his way. One of the things I love about being married to a woman who has good balance and assertiveness is I don't get my way all the time. And then as my kids became teenagers and became more and more mature, I got my way even less and less. And then as the church began to develop and grow and there began to be more elders and so forth, I never get my way, but it's okay. <laughs> as long as there's some sense that all these restraints around me are his, his, are his yokes to, uh, to allow his way to come forth. That's why you walk in what's called plurality. You know, when our kids were little, we used to have family meetings that, that we told them the decrees. As they became teenagers and they started getting good grades and, and other types of signs of maturity and different things, we had more like a family council. And one of the, that one thing that was great powerful about that was when you have teenagers, we didn't have, like when it got to be my turn, I never had to say anything because their brothers and sisters had already dealt with each other about, about the, you know, like, I don't think you should be in this relationship. I think you shouldn't. You're, you're, and I'm, so, but when it was my turn, I said, yeah, what they said. <laughs> so, uh, that, but you don't, you know, God has eternal decrees. We don't. Our way is to find his way. And that constantly crosses our way. We have every day you should have a Garden of Gethsemane experience. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as thy, thy will be done. That's the Christian life. You go to Gethsemane daily. As Paul said, I die daily. Okay? Now, so let's talk about eternal decree. God's kingdom plan in the creation was he declared the end from the beginning. Boy, that's really obnoxious. I hope we can change that before the next meeting. There's a piece of tape blowing in the, that uh, register. Driving me nuts. Or a leaf or something in there. Um, God's kingdom plan, that he, that he, the reason he made the heavens and the earth, the reason he created things is, as if you were a good Catholic or studied systematic theology, you'd know the phrase ex nihilo, Latin, for out of nothing. Um. The reason he made the material realm was a plan that he had before he even created time. To God, time is just a creation thing that he lives above and outside of. And so he knows about you. He knew about you before Adam and Eve. You know, before Adam and Eve were created, he knew that I'm going to be blessing James Davis in the following ways. I'm going to draw him to Christ this way, and I'm going to sanctify him that way, and I'm going to mature him that way. He knew that. 
He knew Sydney before Sydney. Uh, great-great-grandparents ever thought that we're going to give birth to a generation of kids. And nothing that happened to you, that's one of the wonderful things about being a Christian in this eternal decree thing. Romans 8.28 says that, that God is sovereign and he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even the bad things that happen to you that usually the bad things that happen to you are what caused you to start becoming poor in spirit in the first place and see your need for God. So you, you're in, in the weird thing about how God thinks it's the opposite of how we would think. Like everything going wrong was God's first uh, way of starting to reveal to you how much he's loved you and that he had always planned to call you. And when it all goes bad, then you see, oh man, I'm not as much God as I think. <laughs> I don't know as much as I think. And you get humble enough to, to see your sin and want God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the first beatitude. So God actually takes the bad things that what you would call a bad day are his godly loving gift of giving you a good day. If it causes you to start turning toward him instead of relying on yourself. So if you think about, if you understand the attributes of God, his, his kingdom plan that he had in creation, it must be his ongoing, current, and eternal plan. It must never change. When Adam and Eve sinned, bringing sin, death, and destruction, not just to the hum, human race, but to all of creation, God didn't go, oh, no. You know, like Annie M., it's a twister. and so he, I, What am I going to do? He already had that covered. Hebrews 13, 20, the blood of the eternal covenant. Father, Son, and Spirit always had an eternal covenant that after he created the material realm and the time-space continuum and therefore and placed man into it, that man would fall and he'd come rescue him. And that's what we call Christianity. So his attributes, the, the, the characteristics of God, that he's omnipotent and omniscient, almighty, all-powerful, uh, eternal, outside and above time. All these things add up to his purposes, his law, his ways never change. Isn't that awesome? In fact, if you really study the history, read a book by Herbert Butterfield called The, the Origins of Modern Science. All of modern science was born after the Reformation, out of the, out of the Protestant Reformation thinkers, like Isaac Newton, who wrote one of the greatest Bible commentaries in the history of the church, uh, because they believed if God is sovereign and eternal and so forth, then he's left the way the universe works as, as a puzzle for us to figure out, and it's going to be consistent because he is consistent. So they thought. Of course, God many times overcomes the, the uh, that's the problem with the modern science is they don't have any room for a supernatural spiritual being stepping in and messing that all up, but he can whenever he wants. He, he worked through Joshua. God made the sun stand still for 10 hours till they finished the battle. Jesus told the, the storm to stop, and it did. So God, God can overcome the rules of physics and uh, 
and so forth, and astronomy, and chemistry, and biology, and all that. But we can't. Now, some people do LSD or get delusionary and think they can fly, but they find out really fast after they jump off the building and say, I can fly, that they can't. Uh, very tragic, but people actually get uh, the, the fallen nature is the desire to be God yourself and control everything. Some, that gets so out of whack for some people that they think they can overcome the laws of nature because they're that delusional. But you can't. God's laws, God's ways, God's attributes never change. Now, he and his plans and the way he administrates his plans are progressively revealed. Now, that's different. They don't change, but our understanding of them is progressively revealed throughout Scripture. The whole Scripture, God is revealing more of himself and of the the whole point of Scripture is the progressive unveiling of the king of his kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts to give us a little peek of him in Genesis 1, and he unveils more of his king as the Scriptures progress. But that doesn't change the king. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only change that there's ever been in the Godhead is the change that God himself eternally decreed in his eternal covenant that God the Son would become a human being. And there would be the infinite mystery of the incarnation where this person who's 100% God would also be 100% human in such a way that the two natures are, are distinct, but they're not confused because they're perfectly fused in one person. Again, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus. So that change happened in the Godhead, and, hit, and the change that he went through through death, when he was resurrected, he took on a spiritual body instead of the, the original human fleshly body of, of Adam and Eve. He took on an eternal spiritual body that we will all take on after we are, die and are buried. And as we're sown into the ground, we'll be re- like, it, like all seeds. They come up not looking like the seed, but like the DNA that was in the seed. So though every Christian has Christ in, in them, and you will be resurrected looking like Christ. And your body of sin will be done away with, and you won't have to confess your sins daily to uh, your brothers and sisters in the Lord and so forth. Won't that be great? All right, so let's read some verses that bring this out. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 say, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isn't that good? That's Isaiah 46, 9 through B, the first scripture under Roman numeral 2 on your front page. Job, understanding this, I just picked out a couple passages. I could have picked out many from Job, but the one says, This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the the heritage decreed to him by God. Now, something that totally offends our humanistic, fallen, limited sense of justice is God knew who in the end would come to know him and who wouldn't and who would be the wicked and who would be the righteous. God knew that from all eternity. 
And on one level, from a human perspective, you freely choose to love or whatever. But on another level, God always knew that. Now, you can't figure that out, so don't even blow your mind. But many debates in church history have been about the sovereignty and foreknowledge of God versus uh, the seeming human free will. And, and how does that all work? When you should just eventually, you just you can study it. It's really great to study. It's great to read all the different debates. But in the final analysis, you, you just throw up your hands and say, I worship you. You're awesome. <laughs> uh, so, but God even knows everything about everyone's destiny from the beginning. Then Job answered, and the Lord said, I know that you can do all things, and though no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See, when Job's three friends come to him, they have each a kind of wisdom, but it's it's uh, humanistic wisdom. In some cases, it's Eastern wisdom. It uh, it's It's not God's wisdom. But Job continues to be faithful to the Lord. So some of the things Job says in the book of Job uh, are actually godly perspectives, as this one was. I know that no, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that I, which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Like even our insights into the truths of God, we just know they're too wonderful for us. They should increase our worship and our, and our adoration of God, but we can't... You know, and it's very important to love God with all your mind and grow in knowledge. However, that knowledge, if it's properly related to, will just cause you to, under, to, to be wowed by how amazing he is. You know, like I always say, like when I was a stoner versus when I became a Christian, I changed from saying, wow, man, to wow, God. <laughs> That's the essence of becoming a Christian. <laughs> you know, uh, non-Christians say, wow, man, and uh, Christians are wowed by God. And that's why we love to worship him. First um, Corinthians 2, 7 says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages. See, now God has revealed the, the mysteries of God Speak of the fact that God actually is declaring the end from the beginning. He's revealing his covenant. He's revealing his king. The whole scriptures do that, but in such a way that only through Christ can you begin to see what was obvious there all along. That's what the Bible calls a mystery. And God fully opened these mysteries to his apostles and prophets, and the church began. But there, the, if you look at what, the difference between modern preaching even of the gospel and, and the apostolic preaching, is they always preached out of the Old Testament. Get yourself a Bible that, that puts at least puts the Old Testament quotes in italics, or I like, that's one reason I like the New American Standard, because they do small caps, so they really jump out at you. And at times, Paul just strings together around 30 quotes from, the, from, the, from what we call the Old Testament, the, what they would call the Hebrew Scriptures, in a row, and in their way, they didn't do what we do nowadays where isolated proof texts out of context. In the, in, the, in the scriptures, whenever a scripture is referred to, they're referring to its entire context. Now, that is especially true if the first verse of a, of a book or scripture is, is quoted. So when Jesus says on, on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's actually teaching us. And he's saying... 
I am experiencing Psalm 22. 580 years ago, my, my predecessor, the, David, I am the son of David, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this prophetic psalm and was over 400 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. He describes the cru- crucifixion perfectly. Because again, God is, he knows the end from the beginning. Humanistic man will always take any of the Old Testament books that predict the future correctly and say, oh, they must have been written hundreds of years later because they have an a priori assumption that God is not spiritual, he's not eternal, and he doesn't know everything. They have, an, they have the assumption that they know everything because they think they're God. That's, that's why they'll take things like the book of Daniel and say it must have been written 500 years after it was actually written, despite the rich Hebrew tradition of, of you know, the scribes and, and so forth, knowing who copied it and when. And they'll say, well, it must have been, they must have changed it because how could it accurately predict the coming of Cyrus the Persian and, and the Medes and, and the Greeks and, the, and then the Romans? Because God is able to write through men. Well, I'm not going to have time to get into all these scriptures. What a shame. Uh, Psalm 2, 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, of course, is, uh, read the whole context, is one of the messianic psalms that is about the son of God, the king of kings. And uh, the whole psalm is about, about that. Psalm 148, we'll skip for now, but look at it in context. God is declaring uh, his creative decree. In creation, uh, God had his purposes written into the creation. Uh, We're going to look at creation next week as a theme that goes through all the Bible. In fact, these two themes, uh, eternal decree, creation, covenant, uh, is like two of the major keys to understanding Paul's epistles. Paul's apostle, Paul's apostleship that he declared in his epistleship. Uh, Jeremiah, let's skip that one. Let's get into Daniel for a minute. Uh, therefore, Daniel has twelve decrees in it. Most of them are are interestingly decrees of kings. First, the me, uh, the Babylonians, then the Medes, then Cyrus the the Persian. Daniel rides through the changes of empires. And um, one of the things you'll see if you begin to study biblical thinking through versus uh, humanistic thinking is that humanistic thinking always puts deity in the state, in the government. The government will save us. The right laws will change things. The Voting out this wicked president and voting in this other wicked president, that will save us. Uh, no. <laughs> so in ancient times, uh, there wasn't constitutional limitations on government or any of those kind of concepts that came out of Christianity. There wasn't any kind of uh, respect for the rights of individuals and limitations on the federal government like we have in our Bill of Rights. By the way, the Bill of Rights doesn't limit the state governments, just the federal. Uh, although in modern times, it's been misinterpreted. And in the ancient times, it was all about the state is what will bring order out of chaos. All literature, all history 
acknowledges that something is wrong with man. Man can't even get along in his own families, in his own neighborhood. Uh, man is at enmity even with himself and God. We have this, everyone has always known there's this terrible flaw that if you're a Catholic, you would call original sin. If you're a Calvinist, you'd call um, total depravity. The man has this flaw, and it's not just like a black mark in its soul, our soul. It's this propensity to do wickedness that we can only be rescued from, from really receiving the real gospel and the real grace of God and really coming to know him and making him Lord. And all ancient kingdoms knew that, but humanistic man tries to solve that through government. So in the ancient times, the emperor was always, we're only going to get to deal with sovereign decree today. We're not going to get into covenant at all. We'll have to do that next week. The, the emperor uh, was God, and you worshiped him as God. And, and they wanted, therefore, the, the, they wanted the kings, the pharaohs, the emperors, the, the Caesars. Uh, you know, when, when the New Testament is written, people don't realize that Caesar was called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's what the New Testament is actually saying when it calls Jesus that, is no, you got that wrong. Caesar's nothing. That's why the Christians died by the thousands. That's why the Jews were persecuted in in Egypt. That's why the Babylonians conquered Israel and, and dispersed them. Sovereign man is always trying to fight against the sovereign God and therefore against his people and the freedom of his people to do what he's called them to do. And so one of the things that's very common in ancient times is that emperors, if they issue an official decree with their seal, then it can't be altered or changed. Because the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should repent, which means to change his mind. And fallen wicked men want that attribute that only belongs to God to be in the government. Our government doesn't make mistakes. (laughs) Just sign over your paycheck, increase taxation. They know what to do with your money better than you do. And that's what Daniel's all about. Okay, so that's a little background to understand that the kings of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians had, were considered to be gods. And they, their, they, were, they, they had planned economies, planned, they had you know, heavy taxation, they, and the king was the one that was going to bring peace and order and all, stability and justice and all these things, right? Like we have increasingly as we've gotten away from our Christian foundations, which birthed liberty, we've more and more lost liberty because we don't realize what they're rooted in. They're rooted in the, in the biblical concept that man has fallen and therefore man needs to be restrained by written covenants, by written constitutions. Um, so here, here are some decrees of sovereigns in Daniel. The one is, therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is reduced to rubbish, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. That was after the incident of the fiery furnace. Now notice, he's not saying, the very fact that he's doing this decree, he's, he's just saying Daniel's God is one of the great gods like the great gods of the nations. 
And I, the God of the Medes and the, or the, the Babylonians, am saying that I declare as God of the Babylonians and of the empire I rule, no one in my empire is allowed to speak against the God of the, of the Hebrews' empire. Because he's pretty awesome. He, he got these guys out of the fiery furnace. I don't want to really admit I can't do that, but, and I'm not going to say that, but really I can't. That's, where, that's what's going on here. Okay. Then uh, verse 4, 17, the sentence is by decree of the angelic washer, watchers. Uh, the word angelic is, is in italics because it's hard to translate. It's a supernatural beings. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And he sets over at the lowest of men. Later, this is the interpretational king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the, the king. So this was after Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and became, became an animal and uh, was driven uh, to, to be among the wild beasts and so forth, and he came back to his senses. He experienced uh, basically Matthew 5, the first, for the first beatitude, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not fully converted to monotheism. He believes these angelic beings or whatever are some kind of gods, but he's, he's converted enough that he understands that none of the gods matter anything except this God of Daniel. He is the most high God. So that's a lot further along than what was decreed in Matthew 3.29, or in, I mean, Daniel 3.29. Finally, Daniel 6.26 I make a decree that in all the dominions of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. Now, these are actually radical statements because he's basically saying, I'm still God the king here and I'm making an eternal decree. But I'm really kind of saying that this God of Daniel is bigger, is, he's a more bad, badass God than I am. <laughs> That's what he's really, these are saying. He's, He's, his eternal degree, decree can't be thwarted. I know that my, you know, I'm trying to set up this kingdom so it'll last for generations after I die, but I'm going to die. This guy, this God of Daniel is forever and ever, and his kingdom can never be thwarted. God, in all three situations, if you read the whole context, God had worked in their lives to knock their arrogant godness back in their hearts and minds so that they could see their true God. It's awesome stuff. Hebrews 13, 8, we already said Jesus Christ is the same today and forever. But verse 20, you need to say, uh, may the, now may the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. When you, we talk about in the Bible, the new covenant, it's only new in the sense that it was what we were talking about, how his plans and covenants are progressively revealed. But what we call the new covenant started outside and above time. And it was the first covenant of the entire universe. Because it actually existed before the creation of the time-space continuum. It just was progressively revealed and unfolded. But it was always the, 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 the eternal purpose of God. Do we get that? Hopefully we get that. This, this is powerful stuff. I'm, I'm actually okay with the fact that I, I'm not going to get into this page two here. I'm only going to do the front side. And we're not going to get into covenant today. If you can get this, it'll really change your life. 
on a practical level, I've gone through some hard things in my life. You know, my Christian life started with the death of my closest brother. Uh, uh, just as I was beginning to enter the ministry, the death of my best friend, uh, I lost everything and started over again. After 17 years of being a Christian, my everything fell apart, and by the grace of God, we were able to save our marriage and 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 uh, go to marriage counseling. And I was able to change and become a better husband, and lots of things that took a couple of years of marriage counseling and uh, and and working at it. All these things happen, but God had an eternal plan. And if you can get that, that's what'll get you through the hard times. Whatever just happened to you from a little thing, like you're driving and you get a speeding ticket, well, that's a good day. I, I always wonder when I hear Christians go, I had a really bad day. What? <laughs> that's, that's not congruent with believing in, in God or the Bible. You had a good day, and the Lord was concerned about that you have too much of a lead foot so he arranged for your 17th ticket in the last three years because he's trying because you're slow of learner. <laughs> you know, that's what God calls a good day. Things are falling apart. Well, God is trying to teach you something. Don't be an educably, mentally retarded Christian like I've been. Submit, humble yourself, cry out to God for grace, change quicker. We're like. You know, we're like cats that are being stroked this wrong way and going, because they're, you know, just turn around and it'll be like being petted. God is good, but he's got this problem that he thinks he's God and you're not. And he loves you so much that he's not going to put up with your stubborn temper tantrums and all the things that we do in our fallen humanity to try to be our own gods. Everyone is trying to do that. That is the essence of postmodern. You know, I'm reading a book by these psychologists about how our culture, the whole culture has become narcissistic. And if you would study the, the idea of narcissism and that as it was defined in the 50s and 60s, almost everyone is one. One of my favorite narcissistic experiences was uh, a young lady who... Uh, was criticizing another young lady for being narcissistic, and she said, that girl is so narcissistic, she has 3,000 selfies, that was before they were called selfies, 3,000 pictures of herself on her, on her Facebook. Really, 3,000. And what was kind of funny is I was visiting the same family, talking to the same young lady the next year, and uh, it came up in conversation between her father and her because there was some tension there. That she had, by that time, she had over 3,000 pictures of herself <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> and I said, wow, one year ago, she actually had enough uh, sensitivity to realize that's a little bit prideful and, and that's a little bit off base in terms of where I'm focused. And now she's been totally captured by that. That's how what the Bible calls the world system and the, the culture around us actually works. We think what the culture's doing is normal, but Christ and his church and the scriptures are normal. And they don't change based on cultures, cultures and getting better or worse. Most cultures are always getting better in a few ways, and they're getting worse in lots of ways. And God is eternal. 
Uh, let's uh, do one more, and then we're because we're way past schedule a little bit, and then we'll quit for today. Let's do uh, Acts four twenty-seven and thirty. Now, this is after the the lame man was healed, and the the, the apostles get arrested by the Sanhedrin, and they uh, they are going to torture him and all this, and uh, this one guy named Gamaliel, who was one of the Sanhedrin, and he was actually the discipler of Paul. He steps up and gives wise counsel, and he says, listen, let's not do anything to these people because all these different people have, rank, have risen up and claimed, claimed they were the Christ and they were the Messiah and they were something important and this and that. That was who, who um, Barabbas was. Barabbas means son of the father. And so Pilate was basically saying to the crowd, which son of the father do you want to kill? Uh, and which one do you want to bow down to? And they decided to, to worship Barabbas, who was a political insurrectionist. They said, we'll solve it by politics. We'll throw these Romans out of here. Let's let, give us Barabbas, because this Jesus guy is he's doing all these miracles, but he's not, he's, still hasn't done anything about the Romans. <laughs> you know, he must not be the real deal. He keeps talking about saving us, and, but he seems to be wanting to save us from our sins instead of from Caesar. What's the, he's, he, this Jesus guy obviously has it wrong. Let's kill him. So after all this has occurred, and the, you know, Gamaliel says this. He says, let these guys alone. Because if this plan or action is from man, it'll fall apart on its own. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. So he's actually saying, you know, we hate this church. We hate this Christian stuff. We hate this new community of believers. And they're saying Jesus is building his congregation instead of Moses' congregation. And, and that the real Israel of God is the church. We hate these people. But Gamaliel is wise enough to say, if they're right, we won't be able to stop it. And if they're wrong, we don't need to stop it. It'll fall apart by itself. Well, obviously, they were right. And it continues to grow and expand throughout the world today. So that's the context of this prayer. And they say, For truly in the city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, they're alluding to Psalm 2 there, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose, predestined purpose to occur. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hands to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, when we have, when anytime people have biblical faith, there will be signs and wonders that accompany it. God has an eternal plan. He's unchanging. And the, the, the issue for every human being is, am I going to humble myself before it? Before him, am I going to thank God for the terrible circumstances of my life and trust Him that that He was actually more concerned? You know, everything fell apart for me. Many people know this in 1991, and what I was so happy about was God could care less if I ended up ministering in some in, in obscure little church that was growing in the inner city and helping really hurting people, versus what I you know had 25, 30 years ago—a bigger thing that was people were. You know, listening to my messages around the country. and all, it, God, God doesn't care anything about that. He cares about saving you from yourself. He loves you so much, he's not going to let you have your way. 
just as a loving father doesn't let his six-year-old have his way. It's all cute and stuff when he's stubborn, and just like Psalm 2 says that they rage against the Lord and so forth. And But then it says, he who's in the heaven laughs. But then, you know, so at first it's like kind of, oh, look, my three-year-old's, you know, it, you know, it's cute that Israel wants what she wants when she when she wants it. But then eventually, Daddy says, "No, <laughs> you're not going to have this now. You're going to have this. You know, you're not going to drink sugary juice. You're going to eat some vet spinach or something. Whatever, <laughs> whatever the issue is." And in the, the Bible says that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. But eventually, he gets serious, and it says, "So now, kiss the son. That is, obey him, do homage to him, worship him." Before his wrath is kindled. See, every smart kid begins to realize when the boundaries are going to come in <laughs> and they don't push past that boundaries. That's why the most important thing in, in working with anyone is to establish great boundaries that aren't based on anger or, or they're not frivolous. They don't change. They're clear. And God is like that as our father. He's not going to let you be God. Amen.